forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Simon Allen, thanks for being here. This is how a podcast starts. Hey, it's such a pleasure to be with you, Ben. I'm actually a really big fan of the podcast. Um, oh, I, I, I download it and I've got a bunch of episodes queued up. It's lovely to dip into and um, listen to from time to time. Uh, it's amazing, actually. So you're doing that's... you're doing the Lord's work, sir. <laughs> We're trying. That's very flattering. Thank you. Um, let's talk first about this new show, The Watch, and then we'll sort of talk about everything. Um, cool. Uh, I'm curious to hear about where this came from for you. Is there a personal connection to it? Um, and I know this is based on the Discworld series or it's inspired by the Discworld series. Is that right? Like, I don't know much about that genre, that world, that specific series. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, they're amazing books. I mean, they're iconic books and uh, their writer, Sir Terry Pratchett, is in the UK certainly is on a par with Dickens and, and Shakespeare, you know, for a lot of people, and rightly so. Uh, they had been developing uh, various uh, versions of a TV show based on those books for, for many, many years. And it hadn't happened for one reason or another. They'd done the thing where they, they kind of, you know, took the books around everywhere and some people, maybe they didn't get them or didn't know them, or uh, they did the thing where they wrote loads of pilot scripts and different takes on it. And uh, I was really lucky that, and really grateful that in 2015, uh, they kind of said, look, you know, we want to try something different. And there was a lot of latitude uh, to bring a different sensibility, a different approach to it. Uh, and for me, you talk about personal connection. I mean, there was a personal connection. I, I, I'm somebody, I left an abusive home when I was 11 years old uh, and, you know, spent uh, a lot of my life struggling to find safety and validity. Uh, and one of the things that gave me great comfort uh, as a, particularly as a teenager, were were these actual books and the, these characters because they're they're characters who live in the margins of their world and who are, are kind of impotent and don't feel they can do anything because they live in a they live in a city where where a fantasy city where crime is legalized and they're meant to be law enforcers and they just all they can do is watch. I mean, it's kind of one of the reasons why it's called the Watch. So it was uh, as much as anything for me what I brought to the show and what I what I made my show around and the show that we sold to to BBC America it's about that feeling, you know, it's about those feelings that those ca incredible characters inspired in me. And we built that feeling of, of helplessness and hopelessness into the show. And then a kind of a trajectory across the show about how you overcome that and how you move from the margins into the center when everything feels like it's, it's rigged against you. Oh, that's fascinating. I had no idea. That's what was, what it was about and what was behind it. That's, I can't wait to watch this. Great. Um, I'm, I'd love to hear about, like, there's something about tackling um, a property or even, like, that feeling of, of that you got when you were a kid discovering these things. And, like, how do you remove that from the process? What do you keep from it? Like, how do you make it still a show that is for you now and by you now that is also for, you know, that, that young kid who fell in love with the material? Well, I think the interesting thing, uh, the material, the particular books that we're working with were written in the 20th century. And it's been really interesting revisiting them as a, as a 45 year old. And, uh, or I was actually 40 when I started this. So I was kind of, you know, five years of my life. Um, and, and seeing how 
the vocabulary and presentation of certain things represented in these these books is different. And there have been cultural shifts, particularly with things like gender, gender fluidity, patriarchy. Uh, you know, we we one of the things that, that we have in the show, we have a fantastic queer story, and the show is a very, very queer show. Uh, and and Pratchett was incredibly progressive in so many ways, but but his vernacular for talking about queerness and representing it. I think it's not unfair to say is out of kilter with where we are now, where the vocabulary is now. So in some respects, that was that was relatively easy. And and um, particularly with um, the room that we cast, uh, we, we had incredible queer talent in the room. And, and, and we were equipped with just amazing voices who had a similar response to the material. Some of them knew it, some of them didn't. But, but all of whom were very, very enthusiastic and passionate about you know, using this opportunity, this this freedom we had to create something that is genuinely different, genuinely inclusive, genuinely wild, and and I think when you watch the show, in fact, actually, I'll um, after we finish talking, if you want, I'll I'll talk to the guys and see if they'll send you a, a link. <laughs> Please, you can tell me what you think. Uh, you know, I genuinely think we have a gang, a group at the centre of our show of, of characters that are unlike anything you usually see, uh, and the sort of agency and the dynamics of those characters are. You know, we, we kind of got away with it. We, we got to do what the hell we wanted, really. I mean, it was, you know, so a lot of the relationships in the in the, the books um, are grounded in the male gaze, you know. So if there are relationships, relationships between men and women, it's all about the, the kind of the male character looking at the female character. And we rewired all of that, you know, because we thought, well, we've seen that and we know what that is. And, you know, do we need another show where we're reinforcing that, you know? So why don't we rewire it and see what the relationship looks like and what the characters look like? If, if we do it that way. Um, and and it, it is it is pretty radical. It's, it's radical with the source material. I also think it's pretty radical with television. You know, um, I, I, I spent so much time on set feeling so guilty about like, I can't believe we're doing this. I can't believe grown <laughs> adults are doing this, you know? And, and I thought, you know what, if it feels like that, even if all it turns into is, uh, you know, somebody else seeing it and saying, they got away with that. Maybe I can too. It'll be a good thing. Hey, well, have you, I mean, listen, you've been at this for a while. You've worked on a bunch of different shows and different kinds of shows. Like, have you found there is a new kind of allowance in British television? Um, is there an opening up of what you can do, what you can get away with, what kinds of stories you can tell? I think it's happening slowly. I think you know, my journey into television was staggered in the sense that I think had I had I had the, a, a more conventional background, you know, uh, perhaps a family, a supportive family, means, economic means, I might have been in the industry. I may not have been in the industry at all. It may not, I may never have become creatively engaged. But mm. equally, I think, you know, I didn't start till I was in my 30s. Uh, and at that point, British television was in a very conventional place, you know, and so the, the pathways were very, very narrow. You would work on other people's shows or shows that existed. And a lot of the shows, particularly, I suppose the equivalent in America would be network, uh, network shows, network shows, network shows. Uh, I'd love to watch a network show, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and they were nine o'clock and they're all told in the same register. They all are kind of about the same things. They all feature every drama features a family that somehow lives in an aircraft hangar home, you know, <laughs> the, 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 and you look at it, I look at it like an alien space, you know, it was, uh, and, I, and, and so you find yourself writing to that. And I, I always thought about, um, you know, when I, one of the places I lived when I was younger was a, 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 a bedsit and it, we had these prefabbed mirrors in them. 
and they were kind of uh, they rusted real quick, you know, because it was a cheap place and it was a uh, social housing. And then I would see in dramas, I would see these rooms that these characters live in, and and they've got rust effect mirrors, and I would be like, who? <laughs> Who fetishizes poverty? You know, it's like, well, how do you get to that place? So yeah, British television was very much like that. And, and you, if you wanted to get started, you had to kind of learn that voice. And I think what's happened, I've been very lucky actually, is that when I became a showrunner uh, five years ago, um, you, you get that little bit more latitude. And, and it's, it kind of coincided with the SVODs, the streamers, the opening up of different voices, different opportunities, the rhythms of television not having to be the same because you're not hitting a commercial break or you're not, you know, thinking about that live transmission, that live audience. Um, and I think there is that opportunity to look at the rhythms, look at the rhythms of drama and change them and, and, and change everything, you know. And I think there's some, I think it's a really exciting time. I mean, there's no way a show like The Watch would ever have got made, you know, five years, even five years, maybe it did get made five, no, it got made two years <laughs> ago. But, but, you know, five years ago, no way, you know, um, it would just never have happened. Well, I want to pick this up in a sec, but there are a couple more things about The Watch I want to ask about. Um, why did it take five years? It took five years because there was a... What you're trying to do at the start is be as faithful as you possibly can. You're trying to preserve, you know, leaving aside my emotional response, which is what we've ended up building the show around. What you're trying to preserve is what is in these books, right? Because you know there's a fan base. The problem with that for us, and I think the problem, uh, you know, and it may be a problem that someone else comes along in a few years' time and solves in a different way. But what we found was that so much of what is great about these books is entirely dependent on the fact that they are books. Uh, because the writer, who was extraordinary, is present in the story as a narrator and a commentator. And he plays so many amazing games and he subverts the medium and he plays with the genre. And television just doesn't have a grammatical equivalent of that, you know? Uh, uh, or if it does, it's it comes from a completely different vocabulary of, of, of its own medium. So we for two years, we were we were trying to hold on to that tone and people weren't getting it. And people were, were just saying, well, I don't, you know, if you took that voice out, that narrating voice out, it was just an ordinary fantasy show, you know, about, you know, okay, we're seeing cops in a fantasy, we've kind of seen that before. Cops in a Victorian steampunk fantasy city, we've seen that before. And it only really started to click and we started to get interest um, when we started thinking, okay, what would what would you do with that mentality to television? So you start going, okay, let's do something with the music. Like, let's be subversive with the music. What if you have an action sequence where the hero is really cool and the music is with him and it's soundtracking that emotion and the tone is great. And then he falls over and you hear the music lose confidence in him <laughs> and the music kind of goes away and then he gets his shit together again and the music comes back. Okay, well, with it's like that lumberjack thing, you know, with a choir lose confidence in Michael <laughs> Palin. And then you start to go, okay, what if um, you always have henchmen, right, in shows, bad guys. I did a show called The Musketeers that was full of the Red Guard. They were, they were Czech extras who would get murdered every week, you know, and never had a line. And... I was like, well, the, 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 the ostensible villain in The Watch, who's not really a villain, spoilers, um, but uh, it's not really a spoiler, we're saying it in the, in the marketing, um, but he, he has hench goblins, right? Uh, because I thought, well, we'll have hench goblins because, you know, we won't be so performance dependent because we'll, we'll have a prosthetic instead of, a, a, you know, an extra's face. And if, you look, they can't, if they look at the camera, it'll be cool. It won't be bad, you know? And, and then we thought, well, they're always in the background of these episodes getting killed or, you know, carrying things, which is basically all they do. Um, and I thought, wouldn't it be funny if they talked to each other, but in this kind of Mordor-like, hissy, whispery language? 
And then wouldn't it be funny if the audience sees the subtitles of what they're saying to each other? So like, w- w- you know, it started out like, uh, and it's again, some of this is out, so it's not spoiling, but you know, at some of it's, in fact, actually it would have gone out, wouldn't it? Cause you're putting this out in January. So, so I think, yeah. is that right? Yeah. So, but you know, so wouldn't it be funny if, um, what they're talking about is how they don't like being in the background and they resent it and they want like a 37 hour week in healthcare and stuff. <laughs> and then it gets worse because you, when you, you start rolling with that idea, you're like, okay, what if, what if like there's a talking sword, which there is Matt Berry plays the talking sword. It's amazing. And if he starts causing trouble with these guys and he starts pointing out to them that maybe they're, that maybe they're being used as some kind of crude fantasy allegory, for the Serval class. And then you start, the whole thing starts to become this self-reflexive nightmare. And I thought that feels like those books in a way, yeah. you know? And so, and it's the grammar of television, it's the subtitles, it's the sound, it's the music. So yeah, I, I, that's why it took five years. Because when you, when you say to someone, that's what we're gonna do, like I tried to get <laughs> subliminal imagery into it. Um, and I got told by AMC, that's illegal, you can't do that. <laughs> so, but there is, if you watch the trailer, the um, the, uh, the the watch house, our hero's kind of home, the police station. It has an illuminated sign that says the watch house. And I said, well, can I can I can I at least put like a swear word? Like like can the letters light up and spell a swear word? So can we swear on this or not? Is this family you friendly? Can. Yes. <laughs> Go so, so there's a swear word in the UK which is twats, right? And it was the only swear word I could find in the words the watch house. If you watch the trailer, you will see that spelled out in the, uh, the, the only lights that work are the ones that spell twats. And it's actually on the, uh, the marketing thing. And that had to go <laughs> right to the top of AMC for approval. Uh, and I'm really proud of that in a puerile kind of way. But the point being, it's an emblem of, of the position of those characters in the city. That's what the city thinks of them, the, the, the mm. twats I and mean, they're worthless, you know. And by the end of the series, those letters, they're all working. You know, they're all working and it no longer spells that. But it's like great. tons of little things like that that are just, you know, subversive and fun. It's so smart, too. I mean, it's like you say, it's the language of the medium. Um, and it's something that you're right. We, you know, you couldn't have gotten away with five years yeah. ago. And I think you had to go through that journey. Do you think there was because I think we're sort of seeing this kind of um, pushing out of the boundaries of that language um, in a lot of different shows, and a lot of different kinds of shows. Do you think there's something that clicked or is there a new class of, uh, you know, writer showrunners in the past five or so years that's leading that charge? Is there something that you could look to and say like, they did this. What if we do our version of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think even if you look at a show like I May Destroy You, Michaela Cole, Mm -hmm. uh, who who had the dignity and humility two years ago at the Edinburgh Big TV Festival in the UK, to talk about her own experiences, her own intersectional experience and how that disadvantaged her, but then extraordinarily talked about other people's intersectional experiences and was generous enough. And one of the things she talked about was on one of her early shows, she, I can't remember the specifics of it, but she wrote a character from a particular background and she was being told, Michaela Cole was being told by the people coming in to cast for it, this is not right. You've misrepresented us. This is not authentic. And she talks for you, I encourage you to watch it. It's the most inspiring thing ever. And she talks about the 24 hours where she was proud and she was like, what what are you talking about? I'm the writer on this. And then she talks about updating her beliefs and learning and listening. And when you listen to that, which is so moving, and then you, you look at the show she made and you look at what that did rhythmically and you look at what it did with perspective and how, again, spoilers ahead if anyone hasn't seen the show and you should see it, it's groundbreaking and it changes things. 
but she, the, the, I May Destroy You is about um, uh, a survivor of abuse, a survivor of an attack. That's, that's Michaela Cole's character. And she even allows space in the story for the pain of her attacker. You know, she even, mm. so she won't even objectify uh, for the convenience of narrative and drama and the efficiencies of an, a 45 minute or a half an hour episode. She still finds time and space to look at it from that point of view. And that is breathtaking. That's game changing. And it's, you're right, there are so many shows now where I just think the perspectives and the tactics and the strategies are coming from a place that isn't grounded in convention and the convention of the past. And that's why it's possible, I think. Well, there's something too. I mean, I think there's a kind of, I don't know if it's new or if it's a more widespread empathy um, in television or among certain television writers and creators, maybe as it leaks away in the real world, um, that we are seeing like the need to inhabit other characters and let those other characters have um, their point of view and you know, an approach that that my partner and I have always taken is like any tertiary character should be able to be spun off into their own uh, their own series. Like they have their own life going on, um, and it feels like that's something that's taken hold uh, in the past few years. And I wonder, even as you were sort of in the trenches in making television, if these were conversations that were happening uh, in rooms that you've been in or with other writers that you know. Uh, do you know what? I, absolutely. So I did a show uh, called The Musketeers, a BBC show, which I think went out in the States on Hulu and BBC America. and May have turned up on Netflix, I'm not sure. Um, and I was talking earlier about the hench goblins. And the two seasons, I, I came in on the second season as a staff writer and then became showrunner on the third third season. And the musketeers would always fight the Red Guard, right? The Red Guard, whoever they were working for, whether it was like, you know, Peter Capaldi's uh, Richelieu or Mark Warren's uh, Rochefort, you know. And there were always these uh, generic bad guys that got killed. And when we went in there, we were like, we can't do this for a third season. It's like the stormtroopers getting killed every week in The Mandalorian. I mean, I love The Mandalorian, but this, it just, it's a law of diminishing returns. It doesn't, you know, but the rules and the structures and conventions of story and narrative and television demand that they occupy that space and that they're not privileged or elevated. So one of the things we did on the third season of that show was we created a character who was the captain of the Red Guard and who had his own arc. Uh, and, and, and so it gave life to that story and gave, you know, and it was, it was kind of, the problem with that was, of course, for us was then like, we had this thing that wasn't built to accommodate that, you know, it, it wasn't in the, the infrastructure of it. And we would constantly be like, oh God, now what are we going to do with Captain Marshall? You know, oh, now we've got to do see, we've got to, but it was, it, I think for us, or certainly for me, that was the start of exactly what you're describing which was thinking about every atom of the world you're building and every face in it and who they are. Um, because I do think that, that, that one of the net effects of that from the past, from the kind of structures of television, has been to compound problematic uh, representations, presences, hierarchies and stories. So it's great that we're all thinking like this, but I do think that it's disrupting that structure that created it in the first place is key to the whole thing you know, disrupting it to allow these spaces to think about the actual kind of uh, anatomy of the story in the first mm -hmm. place, you know, um, I think is where we're at. Yeah, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Um, and I think that's too where a writer's room is invaluable, right? It's, uh, and I know that in the past, 
a room has been sort of unusual in British television. Um, but it seems like you've worked in a lot of room-based shows. We had, I was very, very lucky. I had, um, so my first break was on a children's TV show, an amazing uh, uh, spy-fi show, which was meant to be a kind of a comedy and so on. But it was being made by a powerhouse company in the UK called Kudos Film and Television. We made shows like Spooks and, you know, uh, all sorts of other, Ashes to Ashes, Life on Mars. Mm -hmm. um, and they had a show with uh, a guy from the X-Files, uh, Frank Spotnitz, who's just the most adorable human being. And he wanted to run an American-style writer's room in the UK to see what it was like. And whatever one thinks of the show that we made from that, the, the fact is that five British writers got to have uh, an, a true American writer's room experience for a year. We were producers on every episode, which was unheard of. You know, it was like, yeah. a, and we were uh, across every story. We were expected to be on set. Uh, I was, I was, I couldn't. I was there flipping a car at three and a car stunt at three a.m. in the morning, and um, and he just he dropped us in there, and and it was it was quite radical for the time. I think it was about uh, nine years ago now. It didn't economically work. Uh, in the UK, you know, it, uh, so it didn't really carry over. I mean, I think that now with the streamers, the finance is there to do it. So we've tended to operate more of a hybrid model where we bring people in for two or three weeks and then break out and maybe come mm. back for a day or, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, for me, I, I think that the system you guys have in the States, uh, that kind of network system with, you know, everybody coming together, uh, it, it's perfect for me. I, I think the kinds of people that are in that room and the kinds of um, stories that are being told, that's changing. But I actually think that structure is very powerful and very effective. Well, we all know how hard just breaking story can be, right? Yeah. And having, you know, six to ten heads working at it instead of just one is makes all the difference. Um, what, was the, what was the room like on The Watch? It was amazing. So, I mean, when we had um, so many different voices in there and uh, and voices that were challenging each other and didn't agree, hardly ever agreed. And <laughs> it was, uh, and it, with different relationships to the source material, you know, uh, it was it was really interesting that uh, a couple of voices in there found the material quite problematic, you know, um, for, the, for the reasons that we spoke about um, before. So it, it became a, a very kind of quite profound discussion about, the vocabulary of narrative about how we talk about things in everything from from race to gender um, to sexuality how those things are talked about how they're presented what the where irony lies in in in, in drawing attention to problematic representations without you know uh, without supporting those representations or amplifying them because it's in that space that those books particularly you know play quite a lot and of course, that those things have shifted, as we said. Um, so, it, but it was just—it was a really inspiring uh, room. We were really, really lucky. We had some extraordinary people in there. Every yeah, did... single one of which, by the way, is away and doing shows for everybody all over the world. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> we were so fortunate. Where did you find the room? How many did you have? So we had, oh God, now my memory is fading because it was two years ago. But, yeah, uh, it was a while yeah. ago. Uh, we, had, we had five episode writers uh, who were all storyliners. We had a couple of what we call, you would, might call story editors or story script editors. 
we had assistants. We had, had about eight or nine people in there. Uh, plus the producer would would come in from time to time and then quickly leave. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> particularly when we were <laughs> talking about things that the, the producer found bewildering, you know, uh, it was uh, we we were very we all fell in love with drag culture uh, because we we had um, uh, an amazing writer Amru Al Qadi, who is uh, identifies as a non-binary uh, Iraqi drag queen, and is one of the most incredible individuals uh creatives that i've ever met in my entire life and just completely blew all of our minds um and, but it was it was so funny when people would just come in for five minutes after not having been there for like a day or two and you would just see the kind of what is going on you know what is happening here and it was uh yeah it was it was great it was really cool oh, that's phenomenal um and did you was it a similar process to what we have here where you you know read sample scripts you met with everyone um, and I know it was a while ago, but what kind of what kind of material were you receiving? Well, you you tend to receive a lot. Yeah, I'm sure you do in the states. Um, you tend to, you know, it's and you try. You have to for your own kind of sanity get somebody to filter that for you yeah. because um, I mean I know there are showrunners uh, I've seen on Twitter or whatever that that say I read everything. I don't know. Do you really? It sounds great, but can you? I mean, you know, maybe maybe you read everything you get, but do you read everything, everything? Right. You know? um, and you rely very heavily on on agents and managers to to you know respond to what you've sent them, which is usually a pilot script, um, and and think about who might be be suitable for that. And generally speaking, what we got were were really appropriate samples, great samples, and and what. It does a couple of things to you when you're in that position. I mean, I've been in that position three times now because I, I was um, showrunner on Musketeers where we read samples. I was showrunner on the second season of Daz Boot, which was a, a show that I think went out on Hulu over there. It's when I say over there in the States. Uh, and uh, I, but I didn't do it because the watch got, got greenlit, but I read samples for that and then on the watch. And what you're always struck by is just how much talent there is out there. You know, how 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 many people are good at writing scripts now? Like really, really good. Um, um, what you are also struck by is how that's not enough. You know, how, how competence and being able to structure, it's all awesome. Um, but what you're looking for is, is, is something that only that person could have done, you know, that you just couldn't have thought of yourself or you can't comprehend. Uh, and there was a lot of material like that. And then, and then there's a lot of material that, that, that feels interchangeable, you know, um, that people are trying to do the same thing in the same way. Um, and I think the solution to that, if you're a writer, and I, I'm, I've been in that position too. I, when I started, I was definitely trying to, you know, to hit some sort of generic touchstone, you know, but it is just to go back into your own life and, and, and think about who you really are and what, what's happened to you and where you are. That has probably only happened to you. You know, it probably is only you that's thought that or, or had that experience or that weird thing that happened. And if you can bring that to bear on on a genre piece or whatever then then you're going to get somewhere really special i think so yeah i absolutely agree and it's something like i feel like you know look i've been doing this podcast for a while and it, that's advice that was given from the very beginning is wow. write the story that only you can write tell a personal story even if it's you know in a genre or whatever um but i feel like even you know having heard that i wasn't able to do that until you know 5 years ago something like that why was that um, what was that why do you think that was i don't know i don't know maybe it's fear of looking inward <laughs> maybe it's like a good idea is a good idea but it, there has to be something else there and and that's what i wanted to ask you is like 
Did you find that that turned or have you always been able to tell the personal story? So that's fascinating because I had exactly the same thing. Uh, I would say, uh, so from 2010 to 2015, which was where my career started, that period, working on other shows, I was part of that problem of reinforcing that narrative of the aircraft hangar homes. You know, I would write those families, I would write those characters, I would make the the character an architect because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And it was only after I'd run my own show and I had uh, a year and a half of downtime of just development uh, on other, you know, properties or original pieces where I started to think, you know, I, I think this is bullshit. <laughs> I, kind of, I, yeah. I don't want to, I don't know, I don't know how to do this. I, I, I you know, don't get me wrong. I, I live in a slight aircraft hangar home now, <laughs> you know, but I, but I didn't, I definitely am not from that world or wasn't originally at least. And start thinking, well, you know, I know what it's like to, to be homeless. I know what it's like to not have a family. I know what it's like to, to be poor and hungry and, and to sofa surf and, you know, move, you know, and, and to be intransigent in that way. And so that, that's, that's, that's something I can talk about. And that's something I can put into characters and bring to bear on characters. Um, and obviously, one, you, you, every piece of writing to some degree is a, an act of imaginative construction. But the more truth you can you can put into it, but you're you're, you're absolutely right. It's it's, a, it's something to do with confidence. It's something to do with the, the natural exposure and vulnerability you feel as a writer. The imposter syndrome that whoever you are, you're going to get. Every writer will experience that. So it's overcoming that, and then it's just having that 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 little bit of confidence to think people will listen, or people won't shoot it down, or or it won't hurt. You know, it won't hurt. If, if, for example, if you if you write a story about your childhood or whatever, it's it's probably not going to hurt. It, it, and it say it doesn't happen. I don't think it's going to hurt any more that it was truthful than if it wasn't. It's, it's just going to be. Do you know what I mean? And you'll at least have that that satisfaction and that kind yeah. of um, epiphany of having expressed it. You know. So, I, but I think what you're talking about is is a very writerly thing, without a doubt. You know. Uh, but having that turn, like realizing that you can tell these stories that are meaningful to you, um, what was the what was the material that came out of it for you? Well, it was a show. Um, it was really interesting, actually. It was it was a couple of books that I was approached about for both the shows that didn't happen, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the in which which featured uh, young characters disenfranchised from everybody else. So one in particular. I won't name, but was about. Um, it's it's very strange because I when I when I go into this phase, I always used to say that the character I've seen on screen that I most identify with out of any other character is Katie Jarvis's character in a movie made by Andrea Arnold called Fish Tank. Have you seen that? Um, that her experience and where she's at. I mean, I, I you know don't get me wrong, I didn't sleep with Michael Fassbender or anything like that. But 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 that life and that world was sort of quite close to to what where I was, and so I there were a couple of books which, which featured characters who were, were disengaged from wealth, from, from uh, middle-class prosperity, from all of those things. And I, it unlocked something. I unlocked something in the books and the producers got very excited about it. Uh, I also got my own uh, show nearly greenlit at the BBC. We're, we're full of these war wounds, aren't we, writers? Uh, which was about a sofa surfer. And it was about uh, a young teenager who uh, migrates between three homes, three different family homes, because she has nowhere else to go. 
and then stumbles upon a mystery that connects all three, right? And it was a, so that was the generic part, but the truthful part was was that experience of of yeah. of being in these very comfortable spaces and looking at them as alien landscapes. And and and, and I think it's so the confidence thing is fascinating. You talk about that because one of the, the legacies of my background is that I I just can't believe people's confidence. I can't believe people think things are going to work out, right? So. You get on a plane, it's going to be fine. I go skiing, it's going to be... I've never been skiing, by the way. Uh, it's going to be fine. <laughs> How do you walk through the world with so much certainty about that every footstep's going to lead somewhere good? Because where do you get that from? And I'm, it's so interesting. I've learned so much of it. Uh, not all of it, but so much of it is from people who were had something in their... Love in their background, had maybe a little bit of means as well, but had that familial structure behind them. Because it creates... In, in not in everybody, obviously not in everybody, but in a lot of people, some kind of self-esteem, some kind of self-belief that the world's going to love you, that the world's going to want you, um, that the world is there for you, you know? Um, and and so that's, for me, that space has been really rich and rewarding. Um, and it's kind of, I always thought, God, am I getting repetitive with it? But actually, no, it, 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 that uh, there was a playwright here, Alan Bennett, I don't know if you're familiar with him, and he said once, um, every writer only really has a couple of buttons in the tin, you know, and I realized in the last five years, those, those are my buttons, you know, they're the things I'll rattle <laughs> until, they take the tin, until they take the tin away, you know. So. But, the, but the stories that can come out of that are endless. Yeah. You know? um, and I think that's, I remember hearing over the years that like every writer tells the same story over and over again. Um, I think that's true. Uh, and and yeah, I remember thinking like that's awfully limiting as a young person. And now I'm like, yes, that is what I'm doing every time. I can't help. I can't stop writing my mother. <laughs> <laughs> and what's your relationship with your mother? Was it a good relationship or was it? Uh... It's a good relationship, but it led to a great, great. script. Um, <laughs> great. Very cool. But um, there there was something else I wanted. Oh, I wanted to ask about. So so. This is sort of a technical question, um, but about scripting the messiness of real life. Um, and, you know, I think television screenplays, television scripts are a very ordered document, right? Because they're a blueprint. Um, they have to be understood by so many people and life is obviously not very ordered. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about translating that i mean this story about the couch surfer feels like that kind of messy life translated into yeah a linear story right yeah yeah, yeah. How i mean do you i, start I to take those steps i i, I my scripts aren't tip i don't write here's an interesting thing one of the things i saw there's, there's so many schools of thought on this right so and which is what's so fascinating about your podcast I'm not in the camp that thinks that everyone should learn to write a script in the same way, in the same register with the same, you know. Uh, so I put my scripts, the language I write each script in is particular to that show or that character. So the watch was, if you read the scripts, I'm very happy to send them to you. They were, they were like a, an assault on you. You know, they were really, they were kind of like a conversation. Uh, and um, and the directors that got it and could work with it because it was it, so it wouldn't just say this person's standing there or blah 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 it would swear at you and it would accuse you of not paying attention and it was you know it was a very interactive document because that's how I wanted the show to feel um, the the sofa surfer show was written with a total disrespect for narrative so she would 
if she wasn't interested in what that character was doing, she would dismiss it when I wanted you to feel what she was feeling. So she would be like, da, 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 and Carl is standing, fuck Carl. And off we went over, you know what I mean? And it would, it would, it would be her attitude all the way through it. Uh, and and so a lot of people say, well, no, you can't do that. You know, you've got to think like a shooting script. But the problem is you're so far away from making a show when you write. You're so far away. And the reality is the chances are you probably won't get it made, right? That's, that's just the economic reality. Yeah. So why not write something that's just a fucking amazing experience to read? Like the most amazing experience you can make it. And that's where I'm at with most of, most of the things I do. There's one thing I'm working on right now where I've gone slightly more stately with the kind of vocabulary of it because of the subject matter, because it's a true story. Somebody, there was a lot of tragedy in it. And I felt like, okay, people might misinterpret mm -hmm. this as, you know, uh, but- But even but that serves the story. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, um, but it was so great because, um, so for example, The Watch was a very punky scripts and even had kind of, um, I would even do something where, where I wanted the, uh, there's a, there's a talking troll in it. And I found a special font for the talking troll. And he would speak in his font. And it was this sort of chalky, stony, granity kind of thing. Um, and it was it was great because it helped the read of the script. It got the tone of the show a lot, a, along. Um, but what, what happened, of course, is <laughs> the pitfall is if you do get the show made and you populate your script with amazing fonts, <laughs> you, you've got to, every time you send it to someone for production, they don't have the fucking fonts. It all kicks <laughs> out, the page numbers. So you either have to redo them or you have to, and my, the most tragic thing with the watch was like at the second week in, I was like, you know what? I'm going to stop doing the fonts. <laughs> you know, because it's kind of, yeah. But I think it's that, I think it's about an experience, right? So I think that page is not just all the usual stuff, but the stuff they teach you, the stuff they tell you to do. You know, it is how can you make this feel like the show? It's every inch of that page. Mm -hmm. How can you make it feel like the show you're trying to trying to get across? And um, and that, that's that's how I approach it. So how I, certainly the last five years, that's how I've done it. And I think that's great advice. You know, obviously we have a lot of new writers and people who want to be in your position listening to the podcast. And I think that's great advice for people who are writing sample scripts, because these are scripts that are not meant to be shot. It's great if they are, but really you're trying to put yourself out there, put your personality, put your interests. Um, and so let that script reflect that. I, I agree. I mean, I think there's a risk as well that if you if you write the script in that kind of, you know, that whole thing about economies, yeah, the, 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 there's few words as possible, lots of white space, maybe, absolutely, maybe, you know, uh, or maybe not, you know, maybe write onomatopoeically, maybe, you know, but if you go, if you hit stick to that rule too much, and maybe it's right to stick with it while you're finding your voice and you're developing, you risk uh, writing something in the same register as a lot of other people. And, and, and it, it, it just might be possible that if you tweak that, if you mess with it a little, uh, if you have, you know, uh, a script, I tried to write a script in the first person once. Uh, I, I actually, I, I, I wrote one in the first person and it was real time and it nearly worked. <laughs> it nearly worked. But, but, you know, try something different because you're competing against a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. And if you just put yourself in that same register, it, you know, obviously all this depends on who you are, what your agent is, all that stuff. But there's just a chance you, you, you'll, you'll lose your opportunity to convey who you are, you know, and, and that page is an opportunity to do that. So it should scream with you. It should scream yeah. with, you, you know, who you are. Well, I think, you know, there's the, the pitfall to that is it feels like a gimmick, right? Yes. Um, and I've seen, you know, new writers use a different font. Um, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't work because it, you, the, 
there's something that. that doesn't pass. It's the just test. that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Exactly. It, 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 the, the, the only rule is um, have you got a story that I care about? Right. But that doesn't mean you have to write it in a particular, you know, it, it, are those beats? Am I going to empathize? Am I going to understand? Am I going to care? Am I going to be brokenhearted or inspired or whatever it is? That's a separate thing. You know, that's that story, that's character, that's beats. But how you execute it to give the experience of it, of, of reading it at least, mm-hmm. uh, can be, it's related, but it can also be its own thing. But what you find, as you say, I, I agree, uh, there was a writer I got very excited about who's now actually hugely successful in the UK. I won't name him, but he's, he's great. But I tried to get him onto the watch. And that was an AMC response to one of his scripts, which mm. was, it's just that. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but, but you know, we're, we're doing the heart and soul thing. So he'll clearly be, and it doesn't prove he can do the heart and soul thing. So, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. So you, you are right. You're, you're absolutely right. Huh. Um, and, and so much of it is down to tone also, right? Like tone, of course. I think, you know, my, my partner keeps saying this and I think it's a great way to put it, <clears throat> which is we're living in a golden age of tone on television. Yeah. Um, and that is in many ways the hardest thing to get across in a script. And I think, you know, these sorts of immersive reading experience are, experiences are a great way of doing that. Um, yeah. I think the other thing I wanted to, just ask about and also compliment you on is in talking about, you know, giving the, giving the, the goblins their point of view and giving the guards their point of view. Like this is another lesson that I think, you know, we're told over and over. And certainly I've heard it on this podcast for years, which is to write from your character first. Um, And that doesn't just mean your main character. That means all of your characters. And it feels like once you all realize like, oh, the, we could have this, these uh, goblins have a world of their own and have conversations that also led to story for you. It sounds absolutely. Like. Yeah, no, absolutely. It does. It, it, it packs the whole world out with richness and reservoirs of depth that you can, you can draw on. It's also, if you ever heard, um, oh, I'd love it if you haven't said this on your, uh, your podcast. I'd love to be the first person that says this. <laughs> Somebody, I don't know who, so I'm not going to, it might have been Lawrence Kasdan. I don't think it was, but anyway, somebody said of Star Wars, you know where I heard it? I know where I heard it. I heard it on uh, Mark Bernardin said it. So whoever mm-hmm. he was quoting, he talked about distant mountains, talked about what was great about Star Wars was when, when it first came out was they would talk about stuff that you never saw but they would talk about it with such depth and gravity. You thought, what was behind that? So they would say the force, they would say the clone wars. And we never knew what the clone was. It was mentioned once in the first movie and you would just imagine what the clone was. And it's like watching a shot of something and thinking, what's what's, in the, what's on those mountains? What's beyond those mountains over there? And it creates a depth of field in the story and in the, and in the world that you can either, you can either, you know, privilege and talk about, or you can ignore, but it's there. And uh, obviously in George Lucas's case, I don't know if he'd really figured out what the Clone Wars were in 1976. Be nice to think he had, you know, and I don't know if they retconned it, but 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 it's that as well. You know, it, even if you don't end up excavating it, it does create a depth of field in the story that's like a depth of field in photography, you know, uh, that yeah. makes the world feel more real and immersive. Yeah, this world has existed before we started telling this specific story. Um, yeah, it's really, I mean, it's what, that's a great way to put it. Well, it was what you, you were saying the same thing earlier about how, um, you, you know, it doesn't feel like um, quantum, right? You look at it and then it's real. It's only real when you look at it. Hmm. Um, and that's how characters should feel. You know, it should feel like if you turned away from them, they're going to carry on doing what they're doing anyway. 
um, you know, particularly those kind of the supporting characters and ensemble pieces and so on. Yeah. It's really important that they feel like, you know, if, if we're going to go over here, they're still doing what they're doing over there, rest assured, because we've got clarity about what they're going to do. We know who they are, where they're going, what they want, etc. On <laughs> stuff like that, um, is there a tendency, and I guess, you know, in a, a, when you're getting to write more than a pilot episode, when you're getting to write a series, um, you can sort of discover things about these characters as you go along. But is is there a tendency to um, throw a lot at a character and then pair back uh, to like? I'm, it's it's interesting to me to find like how little a character really needs to to pop on a page. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um... Again, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, I see a lot of scripts where somebody somebody will give you like a lot of description. So they'll say like, you know, Ben wears a baseball cap, earphones, wearing a hoodie, but it's slung low because that's how he is. You know, they'll say something like that. And you're like, I'm not going to get that from this. That's the one thing I will agree with, that that immediacy. It, you know, I think that for everything we've just talked about, what you're also trying to do is make it immediate. So where you burden it with kind of extra textual information that you're definitely not going to get, you know, I'm now reading the margins. I'm not reading the story. You know, yeah. I'm not experiencing the story. Uh, and I agree with you as well that the, the, the problem a character has, all these kind of hard and fast mechanical rules, they're very, very helpful tools for, for when you're trying to break a story or just attack it. They're like an axe or, a, 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 you know, something you can hit it with, yeah. but they're not the answer. They're just a way of, of hitting it and interrogating it. And it can be the smallest thing that, that pisses a character off. Or is in the, I mean, Killing Eve, you know, Sandra Oh, when she wakes up screaming because she thinks she's slept on her arm, that's all you know about her. And, and it's great. And, and that's enough yeah. to get going. And then the whole thing with the um, the breakfast, ba- the, the, crass, the croissant, the breakfast croissant, and, you know, all of those beats and so on. You know, so it, it doesn't have to be anything massive. You're right. It can be something really incidental. Uh, it just has to have a sort of immediacy and an intimacy mm-hmm. about it as well, ideally, I think. Um, oh yeah. yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. Um, we need to wrap up. Um, I'm excited to watch The Watch. Uh, great. As of people hearing this, it will have premiered uh, on BBC America. Uh, how many episodes? So it's eight episodes. Uh, and I think the first two are, I think some of it's going out on AMC Plus on New Year's Eve. Okay. which I'm sure everyone will suspend their New Year's celebrations to watch it. Uh, yeah, probably. No. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then the first two premiere on the 3rd of January on Sunday. Oh, great. Um, <clears throat> so, so if you haven't started yet, you have ones you can catch up on and watch the rest. Um, I can't wait to watch. Um, we will end as we always do by asking you what you are watching on television lately. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your friends and loved ones? Oh, that's interesting. What am I watching? Oh my God, I hadn't thought about that. I should have researched this, Ben. You should have said that. Not very much at the moment because I'm, I'm in prep on a movie. Um, and so it's long days and nights. Um, I have been watching, uh, I actually been watching a lot of Christmas stuff and I, I, I watched the uh, UK office Christmas specials because um, they have this, have you seen them? Have you seen the Ricky Gervais? Uh, the moment where Dawn uh, comes back to find Tim, to find uh, Lucy Davis comes back to find Martin Freeman, still is just an iconic, uh, very, very emotional moment that I have been, I was going to say ripping off. I mean, referencing. <laughs> I did it in The Musketeers with Athos and Milady. I do it with Sybil and Sam. That that beat, they've gone, they're coming back. 
I've just stolen that. So trying to get that feeling, you know, and that that's something yeah. that I, I watch every year and I just watched that and I, I loved it. I thought it was still beautiful. So That's great. Do you have other Christmas go-tos? There are things, weirdly, I, I, I tend to watch the episodes of things with snow in them. So mm-hmm. I watch um, Pine Barrens by The, the Sopranos. Mm-hmm. By, I watch that every Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I just, because I think that, that whole... The Chrissy and Paulie and the Woods, you know, and all of that's amazing. I watched the um, Baston episode of Band of Brothers because they're they're <laughs> hunkered down in the snow. The one with the medic, kind of, you know, because they they just feel se- seasonal to me for some reason because so, the snow. That's you know, so, so funny. <laughs> that is great. I love it. Um, Simon, thanks so much for chatting with us. Uh, good luck with the show. Good luck with all the stuff. There's lots of cool Thank stuff you. coming up. Uh, come talk to us anytime. I'd love that, Ben. Thank you. Take care. Forever. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.